We are the paradoxical ape. Bipedal, naked, large-brained. Long the master of fire, tools, and language, but still trying to understand ourselves. Aware that death is inevitable, yet filled with optimism. We grow up slowly. We hand down knowledge. We empathize and deceive. We shape the future from our shared understanding of the past. Carta brings together experts from diverse disciplines to exchange insights on who we are and how we got here. An exploration made possible by the generosity of humans like you. So I thought I'd take the director's prerogative and uh, spend the first five, ten minutes uh, going back in time over uh, some of the events that led to the work I'm going to present, and also because some of the people that are here in the audience were involved in some of this, these early phenomena. So first, let's step back and go to the 1950s, when the work of many people had clearly shown that uh, we shared a common ancestor with the great apes and most likely the chimpanzee, but there was considered to be this great gulf that needed to be resolved. But then Saric and Wilson in the 60s by immunochemical techniques and Goodman, Russ Doolittle here in the audience and others showed by that most of the proteins were identical. Sequences are essentially identical. And Mary Claire King in her thesis work uh, was asked to find something different and she couldn't find much at all. And so they wrote this famous paper that said that maybe the genes are nearly identical and the proteins are identical, they just express differently. And this theory actually held, believe it or not, for almost 20 years, although part of it is definitely true, uh, until uh, Maynard Olson, who's also here in the audience, uh, suggested in 1999 that gene loss may be important. That is, getting rid of a gene might be just as interesting as having more of a gene or changing a gene or its expression. And by some coincidence, actually, uh, that very year, uh, the end of that year, just before that, uh, we reported the first genomic and biochemical difference between humans and great apes, the first known at the time, and it was due to gene loss, CMH. I'll come back to what CMH is. So let's define some of the words here. Hominin. Hominins are uh, human ancestors and are extinct evolutionary relatives, that is, Neanderthals. Example, hominids are human ancestors and are living and extinct evolutionary relatives, which includes the great apes. So we go back to a diagram here. There are the hominids, and there are the hominins, and we are one of a group of hominins. So if we go back into detailed background, oh, before any of the aficionados get upset, uh, the branching relationships here only re do not reflect timing. The branch length does not. It's just relationships. 
And there is one time point that does matter, and that's the one shown down there, 0.5 million years. Right here is 0.5 million years, the junction where the common ancestor of Neanderthals, Denisovans, and humans. So let's look at what happened going up to there, and this is a very complex slide, but includes all the known information except for the last couple of years from wood and boil. Uh, talking about all the different uh, hominins that existed in Africa until about two million years ago when the genus Homo emerged and not only stayed behind in Africa and spread across Africa, but spread all across the old world uh, and eventually uh, gave rise to us again in Africa. And Homo, of course, had a wanderlust and wandered all over the old world, never crossed the waterway, couldn't see the other side, as far as we know. But otherwise, was, you've heard of Peking man, Java man, and so on. And then this probably went on for about two million years, and finally, our own species, again, the numbers have changed, they change every, every month now because of new data coming in. But the general pattern is true, emerged in Africa, and spread all across the world, essentially replacing all the other species, including the species in Africa with limited interbreeding. So we had found a pseudogenization, a gene deletion in humans, and uh, this has to do with sialic acid, another word in my title. So what's a sialic acid? Uh, all cells in nature, without exception, are coated with a dense array of glycans or sugar chains. Here's a classic slide from Nobel laureate uh, George Pallade in the early days of EM, where he already saw this stuff sitting on the surface. But if you look over here in a mammalian cell, you can see this huge thick layer of sugars. Same in the bacterium, and even many viruses are coated with sugars. So this massive layer of glycans, which is sort of the dark matter of the biological universe that most people don't study or even acknowledge their existence in many you didn't see it in any of the slides in the first session. Um, so these, on the outermost tip of vertebrate glycans are these sugars called sialic acids, which just sit out of the tip. And there's a lot of them. They can be millions and tens and even hundreds of millions of copies per cell. A recent calculation said that a lymphocyte had a density of 100 millimolar on the surface. That's right, millimolar. That's a lot. And so obviously they must have a lot of biological roles. And the story that we have been pursuing is the, uh, the fact that there are many kinds of sialic acids. And the two most common ones are called NU5AC and NU5GC. <laughs> yes, we have some rock and rollers in my group. <laughs> and GC is derived from AC by adding one oxygen atom by this enzyme called CMH. And so here's that single oxygen atom. Now you may think that's trivial, but that's a single oxygen atom added to 100 millimolar concentration of something on the cell surface, so that's a big effect. Uh, and what we basically found was that GC was missing in humans due to a mutation in CMH. Looking further into this with Toshi Hayakawa, Yoko Sata, and uh, Yuki Takahata, we found, Pascal and I found, that there was this allo-mediated inactivation that occurred uh, in this manner, taking out this critical exon that was fixed in all humans. All of you have this mutation, homozygous. And this exercise was, was also useful because this allowed timing by several different methods, none of which are perfect, but I won't go into the details of the timing, but all of them gave a time of about 2.5 to 3.5 million years where the mutation first occurred. 
So we went further then uh, and collaborated with both Swante Pabo and Meeb Leakey back at that time, looking at fossil samples and the, and the sort of side fraction from the DNA extraction, we could find only AC and Neanderthal fossils. So we thought that maybe there was no Neanderthal sequence at the time, uh, also were missing CMH. But then the question came up, uh, how, how did this mutation get fixed? And uh, Pascal came up with a very interesting idea after all, when you get a mutation, if there's this mutation is due to, let's say, a pathogen that is binding GC, leaving some people with GC negative, you'd expect a kind of a polymorphism like you see in sickle cell disease. How did it get fixed? By the time we had knockout mice with the same mutation, which have a lot of phenotypes, by the way, that I'm not going to go into human-like phenotypes. And so we could do this experiment that he suggested, which was to show that uh, while the rare male that is GC negative uh, and um, if there's a large number of males that are GC positive, the GC positive sperm are killed by antibodies produced by the female. In fact, human serum will kill chimpanzee sperm also. And so St Steve Springer actually did a calculation s saying that within 30 to 650 generations, this could actually generate two lineages. And so we hazard a guess that this might be the origin of genus Homo. And uh, Unfortunately, sialic acids and DNA do not survive in African fossils. The samples that Meeb Leakey gave us had no sialic acids in them. But very recently, this is hot off the press, we found that these N-glycolyl groups, these GC groups, actually survive in a, in a byproduct called chondroitin sulfate in ancient fossils. And in fact, Meeb sent us some samples from a four million year old bobbit fossil and we could find GCCS there. Uh, so we now wonder whether we can go back to this theory and uh, we try have to improve our techniques and convince people to share with us small amounts of the hominin samples. But if you can do that, we could end up with n CSF positive and n CSF negative fossils. And this branch would then try to break up this big bush that everybody's studying right now and get some lineage out of it. Okay, what's a SIGLEC? SIGLEC is a molecule, a family of molecules that we discovered and named some years ago, which through this red domain in the amino terminal end, this is the cell membrane, binds sialic acid. It had, they have many functions, but one of their major functions is this subgroup called CD33-related SIGLECs. What they basically do is see sialic acid as self-associated molecular patterns. You hear about danger-associated and pathogen-associated molecular patterns. Well, why don't your cells attack you? One of the reasons is they see sialic acid and say halt. So the immune cell is stopped by that. So you can think of it as breaks on immune cells. And so these molecule patterns are actually widespread. Uh, Pascal suggests I showed this picture because the picture shows, speaks a thousand words. Here's a fresh blood smear that's glycophorin on the surface covered with sialic acid, red blood cells. Here's a white blood cell, a neutrophil, and you can see all the SIGLEC9 is clustered. The red cells are holding on to the neutrophil saying, wait there, buddy, you're not ready to fight yet. And so, of course, pathogens have taken advantage of this, and it turns out that no pathogen can make GC. So however we lost GC, we threw away our best self-signal. And so now we have these bugs of wolves and sheep's clothing that are invading us. And so then we found a second mutation affecting sialic acid biology in SIGLEC12, 
And here we had fixed genomic changes, polymorphic genomic changes, and major expression changes as well, three of the major categories. But we're really quite frustrated because without uh, the level of molecular biology we could do, we couldn't go much further. But fortunately, uh, many people started getting interested in the chimpanzee genome. This is an article I wrote, uh, and the baby Papo from is photographed by Pascal Gagnon and Sarah Varki by Hudson Freeze. I did get permission from Sarah Varki. <laughs> and so Maynard got excited about this, and actually 9-11 has something to do with it. That's a story for another time. And white papers are submitted. We actually had the first ever Carta Symposium just before the chimpanzee genome came out. <coughs> That's Sarah again, again with her permission. <coughs> so now we have the sequence of chimpanzee genome, and fast forward now uh, 10, 10, 12 years, and we could look at all these siglecs. And the long and the short of it is in the circle of life that Pascal drew uh, for me. Uh, <coughs> we find rows of siglecs, mutations of siglecs, involving many, many different uh, parts of the circle of life from cells ranging from sperm to gut epithelia to TNB cells to even pancreatic islets and ROS production and so on. So um, the problem was that we had just one or two genomes of each of the apes. And there was always this worry, is it just genome quality? Is it just chance? Is it just ascertainment bias? Are we like the proverbial drunk looking under the lamppost for the keys? Fortunately, at that time, Evan Eichler and Thomas Marcus Bonnet came up with great ape genetic diversity and population history, actually involving many people in Carta as well. So we had access to ape genomes. So now we could get a reasonable number of ape genomes, not as many as humans, of course, but still something to work with. We did that. It turned out that, in fact, even some of the polymorphisms we thought were fixed in apes were not fixed. They're, they're polymorphic. They're not fixed. So in fact, it seems that apes don't have many mutations. So this finding over here, and some of these, of course, are expression pattern changes, is, uh, is significant. And so this, so we've shown you multiple genomic events altering hominin salic sialic acid biology. And now I'll come to the actual topic of the, of the, about the common ancestor of humans and Neanderthals. These mutations are all found in African populations, so they predated the common origin of modern humans. Actually, a paper just online, with, uh, including Tony Capra, I think, is here, uh, shows that uh, genes involved in sialic acid biology do not harbor at least strong signatures of recent positive selection, so they're of more ancient origin. Um, and so Stefan and Kai from uh, Leipzig showed a new method and showed that, in fact, there's no evidence of strong selection on these genes after the divergence of humans and Neanderthal common ancestors. So now we can uh, zoom in here and start looking at the wonderful data that Svante Pabo and so many others have generated on Neanderthal and Denisovan genomes. And uh, looking at these sequences, we find that we can find essentially all of these mutations, uh, almost all of them, although obviously the population sizes here are very small, so we, can't, we don't know whether they're fixed or not. But we can find mutations siglic 3, 12, 14, 16, 13, 17, siglic 12, CMH. There's a few other genes uh, that we're looking at. And as for these expression pattern changes, we've looked at comparisons with chimps and bonobos and so on, but uh, 
we don't have all the possible comparisons, uh, but something seems to be going on where a large number of genes seem to have been t turned on in the human lineage in many tissues. So uh, what we believe is that this, this cluster of genes on chromosome 19 has undergone some changes, clearly undergone a lot of genomic changes, and perhaps secondarily, uh, perhaps affecting uh, epigenetics and transcription and so on, also produce a lot of ectopic expression, we think, of SIGLEX in various other tissues. But there's a lot more work to be done before we can say much about that. Uh, but in terms of what we think happened, you can never be sure in evolution. You just make up stories and see if they fit. It's more, it's more like a murder mystery and actually a patient in coma in an emergency room, the kind of thing I'm more used to doing, actually. Uh, but we think that the CMH mutation really occurred two to three million years ago, and we have some con other connections to the genus Homo that we haven't published yet. Uh, perhaps there was some incident uh, or incidents involving loss of CMH and selection of the kind that we suggested, and perhaps pathogens. And, and it turns out that the binding pockets of the SIGLEX, I'm not showing you the data, have evolved very rapidly as well. So maybe there was selection there. So uh, conclusions. Multiple genomic events altering hominin, sialic acid, and SIGLEC biology, and there's a few other sialic acid changes I've not mentioned, predate the common ancestor of humans and Neanderthals. Actually, I don't know of any other system where there have been so many changes. There are likely multiple selection forces affecting innate immunity and host pathogen interactions. And perhaps, this is the interesting part, the secondary consequence has been human-specific expression of CD33 SIGLEX in un unusual cell types and tissues, including brain microglia, mucosal surfaces, losses from some surfaces, the reproductive system, amnion, placenta, et cetera. So I'll leave it there uh, and uh, say that we have a lot of work to do and uh, encourage others interested in this area to join us in this pursuit. Thank you.